welcome to Grieving Out Loud. I'm journalist Angela Kennecke, your host of this podcast. I started the charity Emily's Hope after my 21-year-old daughter Emily died from fentanyl poisoning. On this episode, we hear from another parent who is turning his pain into purpose and has created a national platform to shatter the stigma surrounding addiction and to advocate for change. I miss my son. I can deal with it. What kills me is knowing what he felt. How hard this must have been for him. Gary Mandel founded a multi-billion dollar company which oversaw 85 first-class hotels. He left all that behind after his son, who battled substance use disorder for a decade, died. He took his own life and he wrote a note about no one listening to what he really needed. And he said, check my blood, I haven't used drugs. He wrote about the shame he had brought our family, the shame that he felt himself, and just wanting to live anymore. Hear how Mandel's pain pivoted into a father's promise. Stop the stigma for millions of Americans battling substance use disorder. They're living with a substance use disorder, feeling horrible about themselves. Getting a good job because they don't think they're worth it. Dating because they don't think they're worthy of it. There's people listening to you and I speaking right now who have a family member with a substance use disorder who feels horrible about themselves and doesn't deserve to be. Gary, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. And I am also very sorry that the deaths of our children and similar missions following their deaths have brought us together. Thank you, Angela, for having me. And I'm so sorry about the loss of Emily as well. You are a few years ahead of me in this grief journey, and you've done so much in such a short period of time. But I want to start off talking about your son, Brian, and a little bit about what you went through with him and his battle with substance use disorder. Sure. It all started related to substance use disorder with Brian when he was a junior in high school, where we got called by the school and said, you know, your son is really causing some issues. He's using drugs and, you know, he needs to leave. And you're either going to pull him out or we're going to have to expel him right now or suspend him. So obviously we agreed to pull him out. This was toward the end of his junior year. And the school psychologist recommended that he go out to a wilderness program. And that started it all. What year was that? That Because those wilderness programs were really popular for a while with troubled youth, so sure. to speak. I was so just curious. Was 17. 17. I mean, it was 2002. 2002. And did the wilderness program help or hurt? Both. It helped him a lot because it stabilized him. He actually loved the outdoors. So him being outdoors was not a bad thing at all. So the actual experience even though I've now learned that there's no research that shows that they work at all, for him personally, it was fine. Where it really hurt him was his mother and I not knowing anything about the disease of addiction, not even knowing it was a disease, really just thinking it was 
not trying hard enough, poor character type issues. You know, at the end of the two months, we thought we were picking him up and bringing him home. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. This is just a start. We just stabilized him. We recommend that he go to a residential high school in the Atlanta area, even though we lived in Connecticut. And he retake his junior year there and do his senior year there in a residential program, high school program that dealt with kids who were using drugs. So we didn't know anything. We took their advice. And again, this is not like you can go talk to your doctor about this. The medical, the healthcare system doesn't know anything about this. This is still don't. Now take this back 20 years. They knew even less. So we took their advice. They sounded like they knew what they were talking about. We took their advice. Brian was like flabbergasted. He thought he was coming home too. We flew him out to this place in Atlanta. And he was there four or five months. And he came home for his brother's bar mitzvah, actually. And he was like, I can't stay here. I mean, I'm telling you, the kids fight. I can never talk to you, Dad. Phone. I can never call you, Dad, on, on my phone. I have to be with somebody from the school sitting next to me. I'm guarded about what I say. I can't say the truth. They don't know what they're doing here. Blah, blah, blah. What was I going to do? Listen to my son or listen to the treatment program? I listened to the treatment program and I kept them there. Literally weeks later, I get a phone call from my son, Brian. He was at a pay booth and he said, Dad, I just left. Either please let me come home. I want to do my senior year at home, of high school. So I sent him a bus ticket. He came home and he did his senior year at high school at home living. A year later, the treatment program was closed down by a civil lawsuit by many parents suing this place. Oh my, oh my goodness. So uh, it, it was no good. It, it was just a bad place. It kind of down a path, a path of eight years, him always doing well in the treatment program, getting out and relapsing. He went to eight different treatment programs. The first six never mentioned any kind of medication to use. In fact, several of those six, I said, are you also treating him for anxiety? And the answer I got was, oh, we don't know. He's just got to stop using drugs. We'll worry about anxiety down the road. I mean, one treatment program, Brian called me one day. He was scrubbing toilets to build his character, scrubbing toilets with a toothbrush. Anyway, skipping forward, the seventh treatment program said, your son is addicted to opioids. We're going to put him on Suboxone. They did. Pretty progressive for the time, actually. Yeah, this is 2010. He was just like doing great. In fact, he asked to stay at the treatment program an extra month because he said, Dad, it's the first treatment program it's dealing with my anxiety and I'm on the medication. I feel great. I'm learning every day. This is wonderful. The treatment program was phenomenal in that way where the treatment program was not very good. They had a very junior person basically recommending next steps. It was basically just looking at a database. And there was no sophistication into recommending the next step as far as where to go. They recommended an outpatient program in LA, and they said it was one of the few they could find that was accepting someone on Suboxone. Okay. They actually recommended two. I went to a consultant that I'd hired, and he said, forget one of them. They're horrible. But the other one's pretty good. He went to the other one. Brian called me crying. He was there 12 hours, 12 hours. He said, Dad, I thought you said I, I could stay on my Suboxone. He met with the psychiatrist. 
psychiatrist said, I don't believe in Suboxone. You got to get off right away. I called and we worked it out that they would titrate him down over a period of a few months. And they did. And I didn't know any better. I should have never even allowed any to keep him on it. How would you know? I mean, the attitudes at the time were, you can't substitute one drug you know, for another drug well, and you need to be off you, of everything. Let me agree with you and disagree with you. The attitudes at the time, correct. I'm agreeing with you. But the attitudes today are also the same way. Yes. Well, they haven't changed much. They're just starting right. to. Can yeah. you imagine someone with diabetes? No. Being told you can't go on insulin? No. Or heart disease, being told they couldn't have, you know, or high cholesterol or whatever, you know. Yeah. Correct. And so, long story short, in answer to your question, they took him off and... Few months later, he took his own life. At the time of Brian's death, he had finished inpatient treatment, but was still living in Los Angeles and getting outpatient help. He took his own life and he wrote a note about no one listening to what he really needed. And he said, Check my blood, I haven't used drugs. And he wrote about the shame and the stigma. He didn't use the word stigma. He wrote about the shame he had brought our family. And the shame that he felt himself. And just not wanting to live anymore. He said, Dad, I've worked so hard to get back to normal. And I don't feel that way. So that's how Brian passed away. Well, I'm so sorry. It's so tragic. I found writings in my daughter's journal after she died about shame, too. I think this is very common among people who suffer from substance use disorder as well. Suicide is common. Absolutely. 107,000 people died of an overdose last year. It's in the news a lot. What's not talked about is, number one, there's also 100,000 people that died last year related to alcohol. So it's really over 200,000. Right. And the other thing that's not spoken about is what about 40 million who don't die? And half of those are living with shame and judgment. And they're not a statistic that they died, but they're living with a substance use disorder, feeling horrible about themselves, not getting a good job because they don't think they're worth it, dating because they don't think they're worthy of it. Those don't show up in the articles. But there's people listening to you and I speaking right now who have a family member with a substance use disorder who feels horrible about themselves and doesn't deserve to be. There's no one with cancer that feels worthless. Right. And I think there's a ripple effect. I mean, the one life affects so many others, whether they're living with it in shame or they've died from it. That affects so many people around them. So everybody is affected by this. It makes me so sad to think of what he was probably going through during all of that. You are so perceptive. People ask me, how are you doing? And I used to say, until about a year ago, I miss my son terribly. And now I say, which you're way ahead of me on the fact that you asked that question, you're way ahead of me. Because I now answer it, Yes, I miss my son. I can deal with it. What kills me is knowing what he felt. Well, how hard this must have been for him. Yeah. And this has been a journey for me. 
right? After Brian passed away, well, I, I can go on and on, but this has been a journey for me, how I have evolved, how I've thought about it. Something just went clicked in my mind when you said that, because yes, I, I'm a few years behind you in this journey. My daughter died in 2018. What year was it that Brian died? 2011. 2011. Right. So I'm a few years behind you. And that's what I always say. I, I miss Emily horribly, but you're right. You can live with the missing. But when I think about, when I really think about some of the things she went through and some of the, th some of the problems even I caused trying to help her, right? <laughs> and knowingly as a parent and some of the hurt and the separation, because now we know, I know you know, that one of the solutions to addiction is connection, right? And your son yanked out of your house. My daughter, some of those same kinds of things happen, not the exact same scenario, but similar things. And I just, it makes me ill to think about what she went through and all of the ways she felt like she had let right. her parents down, exactly. especially Which takes me. me. Down two trains of thought, feeling so horrible about what he felt the last six or seven years of his life. It wasn't like he had this wonderful life and that he died instantly by an accident. No, he was suffering internally for seven, eight years of the last eight years of his life, and that kills me. On the other hand, I'm so thrilled about what we've been creating at Shatterproof and knowing that this doesn't have to be for the next parent, for the next child. We're changing this, and this is so changeable. It feels so great to be changing it and meeting people every day that we're helping. It feels wonderful. Right, I get that, because we're doing the same thing at Emily's Hope. And right. I think, how do you balance that? If your child hadn't died, you'd never be doing these things to help other people. And it, of course, you would not do any of it just to have your kid back. But to balance the sadness, the, the sadness that you will always carry with the joy of turning that into something that can help others. It's, right. a, it's a balancing act, I it's think. A, one of the ways that I help balance it is to look at the same prayer I asked always to read. God, give me the serenity to accept what I can't change. I cannot change the fact that he's not coming home. So accept it as best I can and use that to help others. And I know Brian would love that, and I suspect Emily would have loved that as well. And personally, I've always been drawn to the serenity prayer. I think it's a good prayer for anybody in life because there are so many things we all have to accept that are out of our control. Right. And yeah. change what you can. Mm -hmm. And the good news is, the really good news for anybody listening, this is not about some rare situation that happened that can't be fixed. Yes, right. it can't be fixed to bring our loved ones back, Emily and Brian. But there is no question that we can change this for future families. There's no question. The research exists. What we're doing is already working. Things that you're doing are already working. We can change it. We already are. So one of the most rewarding things that happened in my journey with our nonprofit was a man that we had helped get into treatment had received an Emily's Hope treatment scholarship. We thought we helped him, and he's been in sobriety for a couple of years now, been in recovery. His wife came up to me and told me that we actually saved their whole family. 
which just <sighs> blew me away. I can't take credit for all that, of course, but it just was an amazing moment. And she's a very shy and reserved woman. So for her to say that was something else. Gary is also saving lives after his son's death. He founded Shatterproof, a national nonprofit focused on reversing the deadly drug epidemic. At Shatterproof, they're using research to find better treatment options and working to stop the stigma and shame associated with substance use disorder. We studied this for a year. We studied all the literature. We studied 11 social movements that had created change. We looked at the key success factors of what things work and what things didn't work. A couple prominent ones were changes in marriage equality, right? You literally could not join the Boy Scouts if you were gay when Bill Clinton was president. Now you can run for president if you're gay. Well, it didn't happen overnight. So what things did people do that worked? What people think, think people do that didn't work? We looked at 11 social movements. We pulled out six key success factors that would relate to removing the stigma related to addiction. And we built a national business plan to do that. It is three actions that need to be done. It is educating in a certain way, changing language, and it's changing policies. And then if you want these three things changed, pick segments of society that can have the most impact in reducing shame and stigma. There's three types of stigma. There is public fields. There's what's internalized by those with this disease called self-stigma. And then there's structural stigma, policies. You know, can you rent an apartment if you have this disease? Can you get fired from a job because you have this disease? On and on. Is it taught in medical schools? These are policies. Right. It's a structural stigma. So three things, six key sectors of society to implement these, the healthcare system, local communities, educating, media and entertainment, criminal justice system, employers, and we're now doing public stigma, partnering with states, changing how local communities think about this disease. And it's really working because we're doing it with contact-based education, which is basically approximately a 90-second video of someone who's in recovery and says, Hi, I'm Joey. I'm 33 years old. I work at Walmart. Been there 10 years. I've been promoted four times. I'm now store manager. I have a family. Everything's great. I coach Little League on Tuesday nights. I have barbecues on the weekends in my neighborhood for the families in the neighborhood and the kids. I'm addicted to heroin. But it's okay. I've been treated the right way. I'm on medication. I haven't touched a drug in nine years. My life is beautiful. And that changes the perception of the public of someone with who's addicted to heroin to someone that's in a back alley sticking a needle in their arm to someone that lives next door to you or you work with. That is absolutely normal. And there's tens of millions of people in this country living in recovery doing fine. And it works. That's what the research showed. We're now expanding this program from one state to five states. Next year, we'll be implementing literally more than one-fifth of the United States population. 
while Gary says there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to change the public perception of substance use disorder, he has seen victories since he started Shatterproof in 2013. We have gotten 34 pieces of legislation passed in states, which is saving thousands of lives today. There's just no question about that. That's a fact, and that is legislation related to Good Samaritan laws. So if someone is, a bunch of college kids are, are in a, at a party drinking and popping pills and somebody drops to the ground, are they going to be afraid to call for an ambulance or not? If the state has passed a Good Samaritan law, and the kids know about that it's passed that law, that anyone yes. can call for an ambulance and not worry about anybody getting arrested. So that's, that's the key, the awareness. Yeah. Right. Secondly, we got laws passed in many states related to the use of naloxone. So if a state has not passed the law that we've gotten passed in many states, you have a lot of pharmacists, a lot of doctors, and a lot of ambulance drivers that are afraid to do anything with naloxone or Narcan because they're afraid of getting sued. But if we pass legislation that says, yes, you can prescribe naloxone, Yes, you can fill the prescription as a pharmacist. Yes, as an ambulance driver, you can administer it. Well, then it gets used. And I can't tell you how many stories of parents I've met who say, the law you passed in my state saved my son and daughter's life. Wow. Mandel has also worked on policies to end prior authorization requirements for addiction treatments. That means patients don't have to wait two or three weeks to get approval from their insurance company before getting medication. Another recent big win, more states expanding their prescription drug monitoring programs. Where doctors cannot prescribe an opioid unless they check the database to see what else that person has been prescribed in the last three months. And that's huge. We got that passed in many states, no question in saving lives. Because what most doctors don't know until they start working with the prescription drug monitoring program, not only are you going to see that, wait a minute, you know, Johnny comes in and says, I just got hurt playing soccer. Will you prescribe a week's worth of Oxycontin? Well, if you check the database, you'll see, you could see, Johnny, you just got prescribed two weeks worth of Oxycontin across the street, another doctor last week. So you got an issue. I can't prescribe it and let me help you versus prescribe it. But the other big thing is, Johnny, I see that you're taking Xanax appropriately from a psychiatrist. And you should because you, you have anxiety and you need it. But do you know that Xanax and Oxycontin can kill you if you take the two together? First of all, most doctors didn't even know that till we started getting this out. And now that they know this and they have to check the prescription drug monitoring programs, they're aware of it, and they go to Johnny and say, I checked the database. You're not getting Oxycontin anywhere else. You probably did hurt yourself playing soccer, but I give it to you because you're taking Xanax. You either got to wean you off the Xanax, and I will give it to you, or you're going to have to get through the pain without it with Tylenol because if you take Oxycontin with Xanax, you could die, and many people do. So that's a big thing. And now we're getting policies changed around the state on payment models that have been proven to improve outcomes. If you pay for addiction treatment for a team versus individuals. 
for a team? Yes. You pay for a team of three people versus paying for the people individually. It's the same uh-huh. cost. Hmm. But now the team is working together versus independently. And there's been 80 randomly controlled trials, 80 that have proven and improves outcomes for substance use disorder by almost 50%. That's pretty incredible. That's fantastic. So there's a lot that we have done. I'll be honest and say, as much as we've done, it's still the tip of the iceberg of what can be done. And if there's one takeaway from, from this conversation, this is fixable. My son and your daughter didn't have to die. This is not a rare disease or any disease without a medication to treat it or different types of therapies to treat it. This is treatable. This is preventable sometimes, not all the time. The research exists and it's been sitting there unused and we are now implementing it and I know you're helping a lot as well. Right. Reduce the number. Reduce the number because there's so many factors, genetic factors, environmental. I mean, you know all this, but I do think that we have to work together. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take Shatterproof. It's going to take Emily's Hope. It's going to take, there's a lot of uh, people like you and I out there now who've lost someone who are trying to do something. And it's going to take all of us to change hearts and minds and systems. Well, you give me hope. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. And thank you for all that you're doing with Shatterproof. It's wonderful. It's, it's really a pleasure to be connected to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grieving Out Loud. We believe that by sharing our suffering, we can learn from each other and lessen the pain. You can find more information about how to get involved with Shatterproof and Emily's Hope on our website, emilyshope.charity. We'd also appreciate it if you'd rate and review this podcast. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.